Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. Today on the show, we're talking to a two-star general about the Army Corps of Engineers and how to add value wherever you lead. Welcome to the Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. I'm your host, Josh Friedemann, and our guest today commands the Mississippi Valley Division of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and serves as president of the Mississippi River Commission. She's responsible for water resources engineering solutions in a 370,000 square mile area, extending from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico and encompassing portions of 12 states. Her division serves the Mississippi Valley region, strengthening our nation's security, energizes the economy, and reduces risks from disasters. You can find her full bio, including her past work and many awards, in the show notes below or at lifeasleadership.com. Here is Major General Diana Holland. General Holland, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate joining you today. So I like to start off every single interview with a few questions that help us to get to know you better as a leader and give us some insight for our own lives. Are you ready for these? I'm ready. What is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? Thinking about the word that describes you or how you want to be remembered is something somebody shared with me was a, is a good way to provide focus in all that you do. Uh, I have chosen mine to be value-added, value-added in my personal life, value-added in my professional life, just always looking for ways to make a difference and influence others. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is? A leader is a visionary. A leader is a communicator. A leader is present. What's a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? What is it of myself? I think, uh, what is it that I do for the organization that only I can do? I think that's important that everybody asks themselves that question at all levels. What's a book that you would recommend to leaders? A handful of them. One would be Leading with the Heart by Coach K, the Duke men's basketball coach. Another one would be Quiet by Susan Cain. And a more recent one would be How Women Rise by Sally Helgeson. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? Find a mentor or be a mentor. And finally, we have our arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? Mostly, I think why. Why is is the best thing to ask in any conversation. And could you give us a little bit more explanation on how you see it that way? I think we make a lot of assumptions because we've done things a certain way for so long. I think that's something in the Army Corps of Engineers that we, it's a challenge that we face. It's an old organization with very uh, extensive programs that have been underway for, in some cases, decades. A lot of incredible employees who 
provide the continuity and the expertise and the competency of this very large organization. And so it is important that we ask ourselves, why are we doing it this way? Depending on the answer, would it not be better to do it a different way? We'll be back with the rest of our interview right after this. As the leader of your organization, you have a lot on your plate. You work most of your day, leaving you little time to think about your own development. There's a resource for you, and it's called the Leadership Action List. Get the best leadership development tips for leaders by leaders at leadershipactionlist.com. The best news? It's free. Once again, for a year's worth of weekly leadership development, download the Leadership Action List at leadershipactionlist.com. Well, General Holland, I'm excited to interview you today about your leadership with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, as well as a lot of the other great insight you'll be able to provide from your long experience in service. One of the first things I want to get a better picture on is what exactly the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers does, especially from your perspective. Uh, For listeners who have been listening for a long time, they may remember episode 31. We had David Pittman on who shared about the Corps of Engineers as well, and we'll be sure to link that episode in the show notes. But I'd love to hear from your perspective, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, what is it that you do, and maybe some of the -the behind-the-scenes things that you've been involved with that a lot of people, especially in the United States, may not realize you've been a part of. I appreciate that question, and I'm always happy to brag about the the Army Corps of Engineers. And I think I'd I'd like to start with a little bit about our history, and then I'll get into what it is we do. But it's important to recognize that the Army Corps of Engineers is as old as the United States Army and as old as the nation as well. And so when uh, during westward expansion, as the very young country getting its feet under it, needed engineers, needed surveyors needed folks to help chart the path towards building these territories, expanding the territories, needed engineer expertise. And at the time, the United States Army was the only organization that had the bench of expertise of people that could do that. And so that was really the very earliest activities of the Army Corps of Engineers. It it was not actually established till a couple of decades later, officially, but And once we were a part of those initial activities of the United States of America, then as other requirements came on, so defense of this young nation, the establishment, the uh, regulation of the waterways, the inland waterways, one of the greatest strengths, if not the greatest strength of the United States is these inland waterways within our borders. And so the Army Corps was really the only organization at the time in a young government to turn to, to continue to work on these things. And over a couple of hundred years, more and more responsibilities have come to the core. So it's very unique. There's not another one like it. There's not another organization like it in the world. And a lot of it's because it's an accident of history that engineers were needed. They happened to be army engineers. It was at the same time that our government was forming. So over those couple hundred years, I mentioned many more tasks and missions came to the core because there was really no nobody else to turn to. And so where we are today is the organization that provides the main oversight of the inland waterways and domestic water resources. And I use the word domestic because you know, I'm a soldier. I wear the Army uniform. Most of the Corps are civilians. 
for somebody like me who wears the uniform, normally when we're not in the Army Corps of Engineers, we're in a war fighting unit and we do not have any activities domestically. Our purpose is to defend the nation, is to go overseas, is to defend the nation from external threats. The National Guard would be the only uniform entity within the Department of Defense or under the, each of the states where you would see the uniform on the streets of America, so to speak. So it's a really unique function that an active duty person like me wearing the uniform gets to do some things domestically to support the country. So we do operations and maintenance of all the inland waterways. So I happen to be, as you mentioned, the commander of the Mississippi Valley Division. And and within our region, we are responsible for the operation, the safety, the, the maintenance, the continuous navigation, keeping this amazing waterway open. It's really an engine, has been since the founding of our nation and continues to be a really big engine of the American economy. So we do a lot of that. Infrastructure such as locks and dams that you would find on any river, inland waterway in America, deep draft ports that you see along throughout the coast of the United States. We regulate. So when developers want to build businesses, expand their business near any kind of inland waterway or any wetland in in most cases, they come to the Corps of Engineers and we serve as a somewhat of a arbitrator of issuing a, a federal permit that allows them to do that in their activities to protect our waterways and ensure that development is balanced with the environment. So one of the things that I read in your bio is that part of what you do is to strengthen our nation's security. Is it essentially so that we can be strong from within so that we are strong on the outside as well? Is, is that the idea or are there other things that you're able to do to strengthen our, our nation's security? I'm kind of interested about that piece. Yeah, you nailed it. It's a key part of the economy, the corn and, and grain and, and other commodities that come down the uh, eventually make it out to the global market. That is what keeps us competitive in the global economy. I would argue, and some authors have argued, there are books out there that talk about this, that our geography is what has enabled us to be a superpower. Part of that geography is the fact that we have within our borders, this tremendous, very large, very strong river that allows interstate commerce, but ultimately commerce that gets out to the rest of the world. So there's that, there's the domestic piece of it, but there, there is also a military mission. We also serve as the construction agent for military construction. So every Army installation and many Air Force installations in the country get their whatever infrastructure construction that they need done. The Corps of Engineers is often the entity that does the contracting. We do that overseas as well. We have projects ongoing in Europe, in Asia, really wherever the Department of Defense needs us. Similarly, we help other partners in the world. We have agreements with other nations to provide them expertise, technical expertise on how to do exactly what it is we do in the United States. Advise on water infrastructure, advise on how to balance the environment with development and all those types of things. The other thing we do domestically that in some ways this is more people know the Corps of Engineers through this is uh, emergency response. After 
every major hurricane, major wildfire, the pandemic. The Corps of Engineers supports the state, supports the nation in responding to those disasters. Uh, I have actually spent a lot of my time in the Corps of Engineers supporting disaster response from Hurricane Irma, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. Uh, As late as last year, the three hurricanes that uh, made landfall in Louisiana, that Louisiana is in our region. So there is a multitude of areas that the 36,000 USAFE employees serve the country, domestic and abroad. Well, General Holland, I appreciate you giving us that overview of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, especially the work that you're doing. One thing I would love to hear from you now is a little bit about your growth throughout the ranks, especially maybe in light of this idea of adding value and identifying that thing that only you can do, how that helped you in your career, especially as a way for those listening right now to give them some insight on how they can have that value-added approach as well as identifying the things that only they can do. I think my style when I come into an organization, whether it's as a leader or a follower, is I've got to be a valuable member of the team. Not only do I need to pull my load, but I've got to figure out What talent do I have? What strength do I have that I can bring to the team? It's not always what my predecessor brought to the team. Uh, I think that organizations are a dynamic, constantly evolving entity. And so while maybe initially, you know, I'll look at my predecessor's job description, get a sense of what they did, definitely got to fill the gap that they left behind, hopefully do the job as well a job as they did but always recognizing that the team continues to grow. Other team members are changing out. How do we work together? How do we collaborate together? What is it that I do that we're all different? We all bring, we all have different strengths and weaknesses. And I think that helps us evolve and bring a sense of creativity and innovation. And so that is related to the legacy I want to leave or my focus, the phrase that I focus on, which is, value added. From a leadership perspective, I remind myself that it's important to be the leader the organization needs, not necessarily the leader that I am most comfortable being or what has worked for me in the past. And I've just learned this by doing. You know, I learned this by being in organizations where I watch leaders come in who, as a uh, younger officer, when you know they said it in their mind, when I'm a commander, I'm going to do this. Well, when they got to do that in our organization, it wasn't the right thing for that team. For whatever reason, the team was in a different place. The team was either more advanced than what they had experienced previously, needed something else. Uh, and the best example that I have, and I won't name the unit, but specifically, but I was part of an organization that was really running hard, really working hard. Soldiers and families were really giving it their all and had been for some time, many deployments over and over and over again. And this organization was really tired. I'm, you know, brand new commander and I want to jump on board and go really hard too, because this is my chance to command. And this is, you know, it was the pinnacle of an officer's career. But the organization didn't need that at the time. They needed the opposite. They needed somebody really to give them permission to slow down, 
to balance their lives a little bit, to regroup, to get some education, to take some leave and be with family and do some other things. And while I could have driven them, to me, it was important to be the person that said, it is okay. This is how we're going to better manage our time. And these are the guidelines to let people take some time off. Here's how we're going to measure. Are we allowing our team to have that work-life balance? You got to be careful how hard you ride soldiers. They lead very busy, stressful lives. And sometimes what people need is permission to slow down. So that's kind of what I mean by value added. And from a leadership perspective, being the leader that the organization leads. And sometimes it's not what we're comfortable doing. That's the other thing I've learned. Assess what the organization needs and then objectively determine what do I do? What do I bring? And uh, how do I help this organization reach its potential uh, in the way that it needs to? I love that principle of identifying the leader that people or an organization needs, not the one that you want to be or you're comfortable being. That's that's a powerful notion, a, a powerful takeaway that I hope people are listening to. When it comes to identifying that, from your experience, is it just having the emotional intelligence to know when you need to be something else? Or did you take time to interview, to talk with people, to understand? What was that process, at least from your experience? Step one for me is to tell an organization when I introduce myself is that as far as I can tell, the organization is doing great. Uh, I have no reason to doubt that. I think when you get a new leader, everybody's just a little bit anxious as to what that new leader is going to bring. How many changes, how many initiatives, and at the end of the day, how much more work is going to be on their plate just because you have a new leader. So the first thing I start with is right now, I see no reason for any change. I mean, unless you're in a situation where it's pretty apparent, something has to change. That's different. But that really hasn't been my experience to date. And let them know that, you know, I'm by nature, I am on the quiet side. I'm an observer. I am a listener. It takes me time. I spend the time. I invest the time to observe the organization and assess it and get to know people and in small groups. I will talk to large groups as part of an introduction, but my comfort zone, so to speak, is talking to smaller groups to get their insight. I feel like people are more open and more honest when they're in a smaller group. And so uh, it takes patience, I would say. The challenge of this approach has always been that it takes patience. And the world around us isn't always patient. And so balancing my style with the demands of the the immediate and what must be done and what course corrections must be taken immediately, helping to navigate that. And I find after three or four months, I've gotten to know the organization fairly well to kind of see where they need help, uh, what I owe them, where I fit in it, and we go from there. You mentioned toward the beginning of the interview about mentor-mentee relationships and the value and uh, necessity of those. What was your experience coming up as someone being mentored? And also, how have you looked at your role as a mentor as you have progressed in your career? So for myself, I guess my generation in the Army was not... The term mentor came later, more when I probably had 10 or 12 years of service. We didn't really use the term mentorship, but we certainly had them. 
our commanders were mentors, our peers could be mentors, parents, friends, you know, there's a whole slew of different folks that played a mentorship role. I have found the longer I've been in the Army and with a younger generation coming up in the Army, and the language of mentoring has become more prominent, that that is very important to the next generation of leaders. And so I've taken that very seriously. While I may not have felt like I needed one as a junior officer, I recognize that this generation, a younger generation, does want it, does need it. And it's important we answer that demand because we want the best talent. We want to see them succeed. It means personal investment, the one-on-one engagements, the one-on-one time and attention. I put a lot of into that. I prioritize it. And I believe my perception is I spend more time at it than any one person spent with me but it is probably the most rewarding thing that I do. And so it's easy to prioritize because I care about it so much and I enjoy it. And I learned from a younger generation what kind of leadership they're looking for. But this is something that's taken a number of years for me to get through. And I would say peers of my year group, my age, we're all in this kind of recognizing this and trying to do better at this because we want our army to keep these talented young people. I'm assuming that the the makeup of the military has changed a good bit since you started, especially as far as, as women in the military. How have you seen that change? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, especially what it was like for you as you were rising through the ranks. And you mentioned one of the books that you have really found valuable is How Women Rise. I'd just like to hear your thoughts on that and maybe some of the opportunities you see for women today and how you are helping with that if you feel like you are. My journey on as far as how we empower, enable, build diverse and inclusive teams, all of that, you know, the beginning of my career. So I went to West Point in 1986, uh, graduated in 1990. At the time at West Point, so women had been there 10 years by the time I got there. It was important that we not stand out. It was very much a how do we assimilate? We were about eight to 10% of the population. And especially at that point in history, it was just important to blend in, not draw attention to yourself and graduate to the point where, you know, we couldn't grow our hair long. We wore the men's long ties. It was discouraged. Women were discouraged from wearing skirts, even though we had a skirt version of the uniform. Anything that, you know, we didn't paint our nails. We didn't do any of those things. And I was comfortable with that. That was the times I was had wanted to go to West Point for many years. So I was focused on being the best cadet I possibly could and graduating and getting through the, the program. Over the years, that has evolved. And so I start with that because I think this is similar across the Army. When there's so few, when you're such a small minority, you focus on fitting in, not drawing attention to yourself, succeeding, and maybe through your own example and being a role model, others will follow. And so I was very singularly focused on, you know, being successful, continue to get promoted, believing that at some point there would be more women coming up behind me because they were, through my example, they were unspoken or not. Maybe they were inspired, saw opportunity, 
And that's how we would build diversity and bring more women into the Army. At about the 22-year mark, when I was commanding at the colonel level, I happened to visit one of my units, one of my smaller units. And this smaller unit was the same unit that I had led, same level of unit, same type of specialty that I had led back in 1991 in my first assignment in the Army. So 20-some years later, I recognized that there were no more women in that small organization than the equivalent that I had led two decades before. That really got my attention. And I couldn't explain it, you know, and I thought, wow, you know, if, if all the women, not that there are many in the engineer field in the Army, but if we're all working hard, working to advance, focused on our own success, the success of the organization, it's that our own success is not translating into inspiring more women to join the Army. And so why is that? And better yet, more importantly, what do we do about it? It was at that moment that I realized that it wasn't enough to succeed myself, lead organizations, and think that I was changing the Army. And so since those days, I've worked hard to encourage women to do things like this, you know, whether it's podcasts or talk to different groups, do as much outreach as I possibly can, reach out to subordinates to let them know if you need a mentor, please feel like you can reach out to me. Because the other thing at play is when you are a minority, and it goes back to what I talked about, we're trying so hard to assimilate and show that we're one of the guys, quote unquote, part of the team. We worry about separating ourselves because of our demographic or our, in this case, our gender. And that's something that I've just decided I'm going to let go of. I'm not going to worry about that anymore because the old way was not working. The integration and assimilation was not working. It is okay to reach out to women directly, to talk to women's group directly, to invite women to engage me and to make myself available. Because again, you know, this is what this generation is looking for and the old way isn't working anyway. And so that's a little bit about my journey of, as to how I've gotten to where I am. So at this level, it's no longer about me. Of course, it was never just about me, but the higher you go, the less it's about you and more about the welfare of the Army in general. And the welfare and the future success of our Army depends on recruiting and retaining talent from all corners of our society of all demographics. That's how we're going to stay connected to the society we support and defend. And that's how we're going to remain relevant and defend the nation in the most effective way. And I do hope that those who are listening right now who feel like you could be an inspiration and provide some insight will reach out to you. And I want to give, in just a second, give you a chance to share how people might be able to do that. But before we finish up the interview, I'd love for you to just share any final thoughts with us, whether it's something you want to reiterate from the conversation today or something we just haven't had a chance to talk about yet. I think it's very important that every leader know themselves, know their strengths, their weaknesses, their personality type, whichever test you take, survey you take to figure out what your tendencies are. Uh, it's so important that we do that. And, and not just once. We do it repeatedly. Uh, as we grow older, we change to understand who we are, be comfortable in who we are, 
be ourselves, but be self-aware. And what I mean by that is I have spent 53 years being myself. I can't pretend to be somebody else. Folks will know that I'm not being genuine then. But knowing what our tendencies are and how they might affect, no matter how well-intentioned, how we affect our organization, be willing to modify our behavior and amplify other aspects or work on weaknesses if it's going to benefit the team. Uh, We're never too old to change. We're never too old to admit that maybe there's a better way of doing things. So be yourself, but be self-aware, I think is just so important in the environment in which we work. Well, General Holland, I really appreciate you joining the show today. If people have enjoyed what they've heard and want to learn more about you and the work that you're doing with the Corps of Engineers, where would you like people to go to do that? They are welcome to go to my LinkedIn. I have a fairly strong social media presence. I use my personal accounts to do professional type things. So uh, LinkedIn is probably the best way. Uh, You'll know if you type in Diana Holland and you look at the profile photo, there's only one that's a woman in uniform. So it's pretty apparent that it's me. If you're interested in the Corps of Engineers, then go online and search for the United States Army Corps of Engineers, and it runs down all of the functions. There are many more than what I mentioned that I talked about at the beginning, but there's many ways to work for the Corps. There's All of that is online, how you can join our team, how you can get to know about our team, or even if you're a contractor, how you want to support our efforts worldwide. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, but LinkedIn's probably the most effective way to contact me in a, a professional sense. Well, General Holland, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed today's interview with General Holland. If you want to reach out to her, you can find her on LinkedIn. That link, as well as others, are in the show notes below or at lifeasleadership.com. And as always, I want to encourage you, if you want to, from this episode, take action to move forward in your leadership development, I encourage you to sign up for the Leadership Action List. This is weekly leadership development for an entire year. You can download your free copy of the Leadership Action List at leadershipactionlist.com. Until next time, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, 
It feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, Business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If Business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon. And until then, keep living and leading well.